From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. With three Australian states now under lockdown orders, the pressure is really increasing for as many Australians to get vaccinated as possible. And across the pond, the UK has finally come out of hiding and they're back in full swing with Boris Johnson's Freedom Day. But with around 50,000 cases of COVID still being detected every day, the public is very worried about what this could mean for the future public health security of the country. Today, we're joined to discuss all of these topics, which make our brain hurt. Welcome back, Bianca O'Grady, our COVID blogger. Thanks so much, Frankie. It's good to be back. So let's start with the Australian vaccination numbers. I know that you've been doing some very serious data crunching. What does it actually look like? How many first and second doses do we really have in arms? So, I mean, it's interesting because this kind of granular data about vaccination has only been released since the 30th of June from the Department of Health. Um, We're trying to get hold of more data, but at the moment, all we've got is from the 30th of June onwards. But what they have provided now is finally we can see a breakdown of um, one dose and two dose coverage by five-year age groups, by sex, and even by state. So it's finally giving us a sense of what's actually going on with the vaccine rollout. So um, the data is always sort of 24 hours behind. So this is uh, going back to this only to the 21st, in fact. But um, from the 21st, um, 36.61% of Australians aged over 16 had one dose and 14, so just shy of 15% had had two doses. So 15% of the eligible vaccine eligible population so far has been vaccinated with two doses. When you look at the um, people aged over 50, then um, 20% of those have had two doses and those are aged over 70, uh, nearly 34% have had two doses. So, I mean, nowhere near the a sort of this 80% figure which kind of gets tossed around a little bit as being the point at which we start to see some benefits of um, you know this mystical magical herd immunity uh, whatever that looks like because that itself comes with a whole lot of uncertainty but I mean it is really interesting looking at some of the different trends across um, ages and across uh, men and women so for example when you look at uh, the number of people men versus women um, who have been vaccinated overall um, more women the men have been vaccinated, but except in the 70 to 90 year old age group, where you have slightly more men than women who've received one dose of the vaccine. I don't really know why that is. Um, I mean, it may be that because certainly um, age was um, a, a risk factor and also being male was a risk factor for more severe disease. So it may be that, you know, that's simply a case that there's been more pressure on that sort of 70 to 90 year old age group to get vaccinated. Um, When you start looking at vaccine coverage per age group, it's really interesting. So when you look at people who've received two doses, you have this steady increase. So from around 6% of people in their early 20s have had two doses, and that goes up as high as 44% of people in their early 90s. But you do get this really weird dip um, around people aged 50 to 70. So there, the two-dose coverage is, is drops back down to around 12 to 14%. So it's actually way lower than what we've seen in the people in their 40s, where the two-dose coverage is around 20 to 22%. Um, and one theory I have is that this is the group who've kind of, these are the 50 to 70-year-olds, sort of been caught a little bit in the middle with the AstraZeneca rollout. So you know, obviously those aged, I think, under 50 were maybe um, 
although that doesn't necessarily apply, but there, there might have been some initial reluctance in that group because they didn't view themselves as necessarily being that old and also they were supposed to get the Pfizer but maybe there was less urgency to get the Pfizer. Now they're reluctant to get the AstraZeneca um, even since the age group's been lowered. Um, but when you look at one-dose coverage, um, you get much, much higher coverage um, and from about the age of 50 onwards, you get, you know, quite significant, well, when we say significant, it's sort of around above 30% coverage with one dose. So I think what that shows is there's kind of catch-up happening now with people getting the AstraZeneca and getting their one dose. Um, but then, you know, where we do run into more of these interesting trends is the fact that there's such a big, um, a, a, well, not such a big, there's a, a, a longer time period between first and second dose for the AstraZeneca, which is until relatively recently been 12 weeks compared to Pfizer, which is two weeks. So you do see that kind of play out then in um, different age groups. So, for example, um, you see, um, so like when you chart the percentage of each five-year age group that's had one dose and two dose over time, you actually see a much bigger gap between those lines in the older age groups, so starting from around 50 years of age. And we've only got this, going back, this data going back to the start of the month. But what that, to me, that says is, again, we're seeing the effect of that longer delay between the first and second dose. So you've got a large, you know, a significant number of people aged over 50 have now had their first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But then because there's a, you know, 12-week delay or now eight-week delay, it's a much, there's a big lag then between when you start to see that kind of catch up in the, in the two-dose uh, two kind of line. So, you know, that I found kind of interesting um, about how that's going to change. And, and particularly now when we start seeing, um, you know, potentially a, an uptick in the younger group. So the uh, vaccine coverage for just one dose has increased most significantly amongst people in their 40s. So we've seen just in the last three, uh, let's say four weeks, we've seen a 9% increase in the number of people in their 40s getting their first dose of the vaccine. Uh, which is compared to just below 6% in those aged over uh, 75. So, again, it's, it sort of shows that you're getting this big surge in people getting their first dose in, in the last month because, the, you know, the eligibility criteria um, has changed, but also because we've had this outbreak, it's driving a lot more people to get uh, to get their first dose, so you know it's all a bit kind of nerdy, playing around with figures, and and it's a bit frustrating trying to do it when you've only got three four weeks worth of data. Um, but I'm hoping that it, it will sort of show, and in particular, you know, I think it will be really interesting to see how things have changed with you know some of the the controversies, I guess, and and how things changed with you know when the first um, concerns were aired about the the very rare. Uh, clotting side effect, but then also the changing ATAGI advice and how different outbreaks have also changed vaccination rates. So this is kind of one of those stay tuned as Bianca plays data journalist <laughs> and sees what she can milk out of it in, her, in uh, her free time. But, you know, I think, you know, what we can learn from this is how the general public responds to vaccine campaigns and responds to changing calculations of risk as well. And I think, you know, all of this will hopefully inform... Um, you know, future vaccination campaigns around future, you know, emerging pathogens, which please let's have those not come for a very, very, very long time. But, um, but yeah, so that's, that's been my data crunching fun this week.
Speaking of both vaccination campaigns and also looking at what the future may or may not be like once we get our vaccination rates high, we can look at what other countries are doing. Specifically, the UK, they've managed to vaccinate rafts of people in recent months. And just last week, they emerged uh, dropping some of their COVID restrictions, actually all of them, I believe. And they called it Freedom Day. That's Boris Johnson's uh, word for it. It's so nauseating. (laughs) It's like Trump light. He's trying to be Trump. (laughs) It's had infamous international attention in the last week. What has happened? There's still 50,000 cases a day, I believe. Isn't that right? Yeah. I I mean, the UK is, I think, is really, really worrying. So um, Boris Johnson's sort of launched this, this road or sketched out this COVID roadmap um, back in March, uh, and obviously the UK had had suffered a long, long lockdown over over their winter, our summer, um, uh, which was necessary, and which, as far as I understand, did really manage to get levels of the vir- of infection rates um, down very, very low. And obviously, this was before Delta came into the picture. Um, and at that time, you know, step four of this roadmap, which was Freedom Day, ba 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 ba. Uh, was originally set for the 21st of June. And, and then when the 21st of June approached and um, infection numbers were still rising, so they'd gone back up, um, it was then commuted to the 19th of July. And what's so bizarre about this is that the numbers have still gone up. They're even higher than they were, but no Boris is sailing ahead with this absolute cluster of a plan to throw the doors open completely to this virus so freedom day is the day upon which all the uk um, basically all the restrictions and regulations that were put in place to control the spread of covid are lifted so businesses all businesses are allowed to operate as normal there's no social distancing there's no mask wearing required anywhere in public places now the day that this came into effect or sorry the day that he confirmed Um, that this was going to happen, which was on the 12th of July, the UK recorded more than 31,000 new infections on that single day. A week later, when it came into effect, they were recording well over 50,000 new cases of COVID per day. Most of it's the Delta variant. So, I mean, yes, they have high vaccination rates, so just over half of the UK population are now fully vaccinated. But you know, we don't know. First of all, we don't know how this is going to play out with Delta. Um, there is there is sort of evidence to suggest that, yes, um, existing vaccines, in particular, I guess, the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines, they are effective against the Delta variant. Um, one doses uh, of each vaccine is actually uh, significant, sorry, significantly less effective against Delta than it is against some of the previous variants. So one dose coverage um, does suffer... Uh, against the Delta variant, but, you know, to, to just, I mean, basically saying the UK can learn to live with COVID. Um, and, I mean, what's interesting is that this only applies to England, so Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales have basically said, yeah, nah, and uh, they're setting their own pace for lifting restrictions. But, you know, a, a huge number of the UK's um, public health and medical bodies have come out and, and soundly and justly criticised um, this decision because it, it's, uh, I mean, the consequences of this in terms of, I mean, not just, um, you, you know, the fact that they're going to see a rise in uh, hospitalizations, they're going to see a rise in deaths, 
but it also increases the risk of new variants emerging. And that, I think, globally is the biggest concern because, you know, all we need or what we really don't need is a variant that can evade immunisation, that can evade existing vaccines because that would then cause uh, a catastrophic, uh, <laughs> so, well, even more catastrophic situation. So, the you know, the British Medical Association has condemned this as, you know, there's even... Experts all around the world are condemning um, this decision to, to to kind of stick with this Freedom Day plan, which is just the most nauseating title because it's just Boris trying to be Trump. Like, just don't. There's a reason he lost the election and he was a complete idiot. He didn't know his ass from his elbow. So for God's sake, don't use that as a model of behaviour. Um, I mean, it just it boggles the mind and I, I can't imagine how people in the UK are feeling right now because... You know, I would imagine that the vast majority of people probably think this is not a good idea and um, certainly just kind of looking at the coverage of it. But, you know, when it's they're at risk, they're, um, I guess, uh, vulnerable and there's not a lot that they can do about it. There will be people who will say this is fantastic and they will go out unmasked and they will open their shops and they will shop and not social distance and... Yeah, it's it's not good. And, you know, to have that happening, uh, you know, when you compare what's happening in Sydney and Victoria and how quickly we've gone into a hard lockdown, um, perhaps not quickly enough, uh, and with relatively few cases compared to the UK, um, it just really highlights, I guess, the folly of this approach, particularly in the face of the Delta variant. Our listeners can't see me, but I've been shaking my head the entire time that Bianca has been explaining this situation. I've got situation. a lot of hand-waving going on. It's like that, what are you doing? It feels like a, that line from Moonstreet, your life's going down the toilet. It's like the world's going down the toilet. So, yeah, I get a little bit het up, as I imagine a huge number of medicos are doing as well at these through the, all of this. And I think that's what's so heartbreaking about it is, it, well, there's a number of things. It's not just you know, the people who are going to get very sick and die from this, but it's also what it's going to do to the NHS. And, you know, I think that's that that fear. You know, I still remember those stories coming out of New York where they had temporary morgues set up in Central Park and in India where, you know, it just simply ran out of wood to burn bodies. And, you know, to, to imagine a healthcare system overrun like that where, you know, doctors are being forced to choose who gets a ventilator and who doesn't, it's, it's such an ever-present threat. You know, we are so not out of the woods yet. And so, I, you know, if anything, I think now is the time for even greater vigilance and even greater caution because we are dealing with what I think I saw described today as the most infectious respiratory disease that I don't know if it was ever because I don't know if that means measles, pops measles off the post. But, yeah, Delta is another beast. And, you know, to behave as if, you know, if this is still the game, same game, is just lunacy. And we know here in Australia that Delta is proving more sticky, may I say, than any other variant that we've seen. And to give an idea of what that looks like on the ground in London at the moment, anecdotally, I've seen online people saying that, you know, they're still using their national check-in system. So you have to use that at every venue, or at least you're recommended to use that at every venue that you go to. And at the moment, there's now so much freedom of movement that roughly every second person is getting pinged for a location that they've been to where there's been COVID. But at the same time, there is no public health methods in place anymore to offer you any protection. They came out of lockdown with a contact tracing system that was basically non-existent. Wow. So It just it blows the mind. I, I often wonder, you know, 
how historians, you know, medical historians will look back, or any any historian, you know, will look back on these moments and just go, what in the name of all things infectious disease were you thinking? Bianca, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Frankie. The Tea Room is a joint effort and collaboration by the journalists of the Medical Republic. The artwork and music for the show is produced by Victoria Nelson. Catch you next time.